Welcome to this week's Insights Podcast on the Acadia Broadcasting Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Don, I had an interesting conversation this week with Michael Graydon, the CEO of Food, Health, and Consumer Products of Canada, a large trade association representing the food and consumer products manufacturers in Canada. Uh, we were talking about the fact that a lot of major international brands have been leaving Canada, including Kleenex, Skippy, Delicio, Stouffer's, Lean Cuisine. Uh, we've had shortages of baby formula and cough medicine in recent months as a result of global supply chain issues. And a lot of this is, is, is implicated in terms of the increase in the cost of food and consumer products in Canada. And uh, Michael is very concerned that uh, this uh, decreasing competition uh, on the shelves in local grocery stores is going to lead to future inflation and all kinds of other challenges. So we had a great conversation about why this is happening and about uh, potential solutions. Well, you know, this podcast is uh, really good timing. Uh, as you know, um, Government of Canada just had the five uh, major food companies in to talk about uh, food inflation. And, uh, and frankly, I, I don't actually think it's the, re it's the retailers that are the problem. The retailers only pass along the costs that they have. They have a pretty thin margin. And yeah, I think their profits are, 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 are pretty uh, robust at the moment, but that may be based on, the, on, on, on just the growth in the industry. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, is that there are many, many other places that the government needs to focus on in terms of getting our food costs down. And you've just nailed it the distribution chain. There's all kinds of costs along there um, that are problematic. Um, and, and including, I think you, you, I'm sure you talked about regulations, which are crazy in this country, you know, and, and we need to have standardization, at least with the U.S., to make it easier for U.S. food uh, producers to import their products into this country. That's why they're leaving, are, are they not? Because the regulations just don't work for them. Yes, yeah, so we had a really good conversation about that. Apparently, there are over 140,000 different regulations in Canada. And uh, yeah, every product you import from baby formula to uh, frozen pizza, there's a, just a ton of, uh, of regulations associated with that. So I was under the opinion when we did free trade with the U.S. that these, these regulations would be harmonized. And even now, 20 years after NAFTA, 20 plus years after NAFTA, uh, there's still a lot of these complex regulatory situations and Canada keeps introducing more regulations around plastics and other uh, issues that are impacting these manufacturers. So we do have to get that under control. And, and Michael had a lot to say about how we would do that. Yeah. And another, another, you know, big taboo subject in Canada is the whole issue around supply management, especially for the dairy uh, uh, products uh, industry, you know, we pay uh, significantly more for those products than almost anywhere else in the world. Uh, for some reason, uh, you know, we've been protecting uh, those uh, those producers forever. And there are strong political con uh, you know, contingency uh, that government don't want to go against, but it really costs consumers a lot of money. I'm sure you've talked about that. I'm pretty sure the association is not, not a supporter of that supply management uh, stuff either, right? Yeah, they're not, in general, they're not a big fan of government, you know, involvement or government decision making, right? So even on the grocery side, they're working on a, on a voluntary grocery code of conduct, one that was similar to one that was done in the United Kingdom to great success a few years ago. So yeah, I think the, the, their position is that the solutions here have to be market based and government's role is to try and limit how it's uh, the, some of the challenges it's creating through its legislation and regulation, even though it may be well intended. I think the other opportunity for Canada is probably to, to try to encourage more producers uh, and manufacturers to locate in Canada. I mean, we've got a pretty big market. You, you know, we've uh, you know we're up to forty million people. It's not a small market anymore. I mean, the, you know, the size of the country is a challenge in terms of distribution for sure, and that adds to the cost of the you know food uh, across the country. But you know, the government's very quick to give incentives to everything else. Uh, and we know that in the United States, the governments down there incentivize uh, these food companies to uh, set up operations in the various states. Like, you know, uh, food security is a big issue and, 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 and choice and, uh, is a big issue. Uh, 
and it doesn't seem like this is on um, you know the government's uh, radar. They they want to make a political point by bringing in the, the CEOs and and sh- you know pretending frankly that they're going to make a difference in in food costs. That's not what they did will not make a difference in food costs. Let's be honest. There are other things that have to be done to bring food costs down. One of them is manufacturing uh, products in, in in Canada. That's right. And M- Michael makes that case, and not only just in Canada in general, but also regionally. Mm. He makes the case for Atlantic Canada and for Western Canada as well, based on the, the raw materials that we have uh, in our markets, the food products that we have here. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And the other thing is, interestingly enough, it's actually easier to export from Canada to the U.S. than vice versa because of all these because of all these regulations. So, so yeah, encouraging more to set up here. But as he points out, there are still very, very significant incentives, federal, state, and local, uh, if you set up these types of operations in the U.S. And according to him, Canada is much less interested in attracting these types of manufacturing operations. We're focused more on, you know, EVs and, and battery plants and things like that, but not as much on food products, yeah. even though that would help moderate some of this food inflation. I just want to make a, a, a note of something too, and I think this may be a topic for us to explore on our own, David, is uh, if we take a look at the food producers in this region, and we have we have some a couple of really big ones, McCain's, of course, uh, in New Brunswick, uh, Cavendish on the island, Highliner in Nova Scotia. I mean, we have some big food producers here that are, are are you know uh, serving national and international markets. So it's not that we can't do it, right? We can do it. Yeah, yeah. Oxford food as well. So oh, absolutely, so course, Don. Yeah. Let's let's make a little tick mark to to take a look at that sector at some time in the near future. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Graydon, CEO of Food, Health, and Consumer Products. So before we get started on the topic of competition and why global companies are dropping brands in Canada, can you tell us a little bit about food, health, and consumer products of Canada? What is it? How is it funded and government governed? And how many staff? And also, it'd be great to for a little bit of background on yourself, so how you ended up as CEO of this organization. Sure. Uh, FHCP, as we call it, uh, is a trade association. We represent uh, manufacturers and distributors within the food, consumer health, and consumer goods uh, categories um, of manufacturing. Um, Our members are everything from very large multinationals, global entities, to very small uh, manufacturers in different parts of Canada. So a real diversity of, of people uh, participate in our organization. We support them not only on public policy and advocacy, <clears throat> um, but very strongly in regulatory. We're, we're the only um, trade association in our area that actually does regulatory work on behalf of our, our membership. Um, they pay a fee. Um, to be a part of the organization, and the fee is is designed around size. And depending on the size of the organization, you obviously play more. Um, about 200 members, and we represent about 80% of the products that you see center store in a grocery store or a pharmacy in Canada. Um, the manufacturers that make those products are our members. I've been uh, I've had the privilege of running this organization for seven years. Um, my background is is really in food and beverage manufacturing. Spent many years in that side of it. Um, I have worked in large glo- grocery retail uh, for a couple of years, a number of years. I've worked in food service, um, and also had a bit of a stint running a large crown corporation in the province of British Columbia for a number of years. And find myself now here at FHCP. It's a wonderful organization. Um, I've got a tremendous team around me. Again, many trade associations that are in this sector are one and two people operations, very focused just on government relations and some fairly narrow file scope. Uh, We have almost 40 employees with two offices, um, one in Toronto and, uh, and one in Ottawa. And we deal with everything from regulatory Uh, affairs as it relates to food and consumer health products, the interface with retail, 
um, and and what is necessary in regards to trying to, you know, create a good relationship within the industry with retail supply chain. So we're doing an awful lot of work on transportation and those components of it. Um, sustainability. We have a team dedicated to sustainability, plastics, recycling. And of course, we have a, an events team and we run a number of events during the year to be able to provide thought leadership to our members. So pretty diversified organization, pretty unique, one of the largest in the country. So uh, it's a it's a it's a lot of fun and every day is a different challenge and a different issue. So it's certainly not boring. <laughs> Yeah, that's impressive. I, I, you must be one of the larger ones. I'm familiar with a lot of the associations, but uh, 40 staff, that's a big team. It is a big team. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, we've got people that have got extensive grocery retail experience. We have sort of the scientific type people in our organization that are working on the regulatory side of things. And, and then just a really top-notch government relations team up in Ottawa, which does a phenomenal job for us as well. So you wrote a very interesting article recently entitled, Let's Talk About Why Canada's Food and Consumer Brands Are Leaving, which detailed a number of examples of global companies moving out of the country or dropping specific brands in Canada. Uh, maybe you could start with some examples of these companies and brands, such as Kleenex and, and others. Can you give us a, an example, a few examples of, of, of these companies and brands that are leaving? Yeah, the, the, there's two sides of what's happening. One is you're seeing um, a reduction in SKUs and, and actual products, but you're also seeing an elimination of manufacturing capacity. So let me start first with the, the actual brands that, you know, we're, we're used to. Organizations, you know, you've seen Kleenex leave, we've seen Bugles leave, we've seen Skippy Peanut Butter leave, we've seen Delicio leave, and and a number of others. I, I think it's just, you know, part of the challenge here is it's, um it's not an ideal market um, for some products to be able to succeed. And I think the manufacturers, obviously they are, uh, they're, they're profit organizations, not charities. So if they're not making any money on these products for various reasons, um, then they pull out. And, you know, when you look at the decision that Nestle made to eliminate a number of their frozen categories, it's close to 20% of their volume but there was really virtually zero profitability. If anything, they were losing money on those categories because of how those categories get structured. So, you know, if I look at frozen pizza as an example, highly, highly um, influenced by private label. So um, from a pricing perspective, there's an advantage to the retailer because they set the prices. Um, you've got um, highly promotional related categories so constantly asking for promotional dollars to discount and you've also got a very expensive category from a distribution perspective because it's cold supply chain so as it turns out that product was never made in Canada it was made in the United States and imported to Canada so you've got that cold supply chain coming along the way and the wonderful people at Health Canada have very different regulatory requirements. So the flour that goes into the pizza crust has to be different than the flour that's utilized in production in the United States. The meats that are used have different requirements from a regulation perspective. And the cheese is different in regards to its regulation and the tariff component in regards to the protectionism on, on dairy in this country. So all of those things add cost because um, you're running short runs to accommodate a market like Canada, which, you know, we look at our country on a map and it looks like a massive place, but there's 40 million people. And in comparison to the United States and other global markets, it is very, very small and not strong enough or large enough to dictate global supply chain issues. So I think that's having a significant impact, unfortunately, on some of these things. You also look at the consolidation of retail here in Canada. You've got five retailers commanding 80% of the volume. And, and so there is a significant power base that exists there. There's no question about it. Um, I will say we have some of the best retailers in the world. But when you've got such market dominance, there is an imbalance of power. And no single retailer or no single supplier within a retailer environment has more than 4% of their volume. Conversely, 
most of the large manufacturers have anywhere from 20 to 30% of the volume dedicated to each of these large manufacturers. So that power imbalance is there. So, you know, many people say, well, you know, a large manufacturer, multinational must have power. Not when they're only 3% of a company's um, volume and they have other options. So the dynamics of that also sort of impact decisions as to is it economically viable to have these products in this marketplace or not? So you're starting to see the exit. And unfortunately, that conversation is happening more often than, than we would like around boardroom tables in some of these organizations. So we're going to come back to what government should do. It sounds to me like the place to start is with the flour, meat, and cheese. And, and how that's regulated differently than the U.S., although we could we will also talk about supply chain, and, and I'll try to understand for you why, why the market's not big enough to handle the manufacturing of these products. But let's start with a very simple question, and that is, so we have a few less brands and less choice in peanut butter. Why should we be concerned? Why should Canadians be concerned? It, you don't have choice, and I think that's really what it comes down to. You know, you're... you're you're going to get at some point you may wake up and walk into a grocery store and you'll have the choice of their private label product and one national brand. And, you know, taste preferences are a little bit different. You get less activity from a promotional pricing perspective as, 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 as it starts to shrink, as the category starts to shrink, there's less competitive pressure within that category to gain market share through pricing. So if there's only one or two players, they probably just push their chair back and say, let's just write this out and let the private label product be the loss leader or the discount brand. And if people are interested in that, then great. And if they're not, then great. So, so I, you know, choice is always a strong driver of deflation because manufacturers are competitive by nature and they will always work hard in regards to trying to gain more sales and more market share. And the more that are in the category, the better it is from an inflation perspective. So it becomes, I think, a consequence of some of the inflation impact that we're going to continue to see, I think, is this lack of variety. Um, you discuss in your article six reason, reasons. You've, you've talked a little bit about a couple in, in your preamble here, but Maybe we could start with your assertion that this is a small market. I think that might be a bit um, surprising to people. We're a G7 country. We, we do have 40 million. That, of course, that pales in comparison to the U.S., but, you know, in comparison to a lot of European countries or Australia or other countries, 40 million is fairly significant, although it is spread out in a very wide footprint. But explain to us a little bit more about why you think or why these big companies think this is a relatively small market, even though it's wealthy and it's a G7 country? Yeah, the Canadian grocery sector would fit in California. And, you know, it's, it, it is, and to your point, David, it is spread across the country and the supply chain distribution challenges and the cost impacts that that have are, are significant as well, because you've got to distribute these goods um, you know, majority of the manufacturing takes place in central Canada. So you've got all this stuff having to be shipped east and west at the end of the day. Um, a, a lot of it, too, is that when you're importing to this marketplace from the United States, let's say, to have to make significant changes to formulization to accommodate the regulatory environment that exists here, the market's not large enough to be able to do that for, let's say, a product that is going to do $100 million worth of business. It's doing $10 billion in the United States. So I'm not going to stop my line, clean it, bring in all these extra new ingredients, run it, shut it down again, clean it, and then run my other line. And so that's part of the challenge. But because of the economic uncertainty here, because of highly high regulation burden, consolidation of retail, the diversity of, you know, where the market spreads across a very large geography, to come and build a plant here and make those capital investments in Canada is a significant decision. And 
at the end of the day, you don't get that sort of global supply chain benefit because of the regulatory issues. So it's all this stop and start. If you were to run a line in the in, in here in Canada, and some of the companies used to do this and some still do, they will stop the line when the Canadian manufacturing requirements are finished. And all you have to change is the packaging line. That takes five minutes. You take out the Canadian packaging with its bilingual requirements. You put in the U.S. packaging. So we've got members that function on a, on a global supply chain basis. And they make a particular product, XYZ product. And, and they make it for their global network. And so they continue to invest capital in these plants because of that. But it's only in those categories where the regulatory environment isn't so stringent. Um, in our in our um, consumer health side of our business, we uh, do a lot of work on infant formula, and we do not make infant formula in this country anymore. And the regulatory requirement for that product is very different than the United States. So we ended up with some significant shortages of some infant formula products this past year, not the traditional product, but more specialty products. And the problem being is when we went through the process of forecasting Canadian needs, they manufactured to it, but then there was a plant problem and a closure. And then all of a sudden, zip. There's no manufacturing whatsoever. And so there's no product coming up. Now, there was a significant amount of inventory in the United States because they could build up that inventory. They didn't. They just didn't build up adequate supplies of that inventory for the Canadian market, but it's so narrow in regards to scope. So those are the consequences that you start to end up with. Um, and so it, it, it is still feels small in, in regards to that aspect. And we're just not leveraging the opportunities I think we have in this country, unfortunately. So here's a two-part question related to the regula regulatory burden and delay issue that you're concerned about. The first is, um, do you think those delays and those sort of regulatory hurdles, whether it's on the, let's say the pizza side or in any of the products you're dealing with infant formula, do you think that's done on purpose to try and encourage the manufacturers to manufacture here? That's part A. And part B, why doesn't NAFTA, or whatever it's called now, the Canadian Free, whatever the, the Trump version of that is, I thought that was supposed to eliminate all or most of those differences. So can you explain to us why they're in place in the first place? Is it, is it to try and encourage, make it so complicated that the manufacturers will want to manufacture here? Uh, and what about the, the NAFTA Trump thing? Yeah, I, I, I think there may have been some intentions back in the day. Uh, we even, you know, had some requirements here in Canada in regards to changing um, the size of a can and how it was structured. And I think some of that was designed. But again, bad public policy. It didn't work. And it's actually had the opposite effect in regards to uh, manufacturing capacity starting to move out of the country. So today, we as an industry are functioning under the burden of 140,000 regulations. And <laughs> those regulations add cost, those regulations add complexity. And, you know, we're all about regulations being there for the benefit of, of safety and health and sustainability. But you, you can have overkill. And I think we currently have overkill. And it's getting worse as the days go on. As we look at some of the new programs that are coming from Environment Canada in regards to plastic reduction, it is amazing um, the level of activity on a regulatory basis with significant implications in regards to increased food waste, um, uh, increased cost to the industry. Um, it's playing very badly in regards to global markets because, uh, again, we have to make adjustments for Canada where we can ship all over the world like this, but we got to ship differently to Canada. So as it relates to NAFTA in the United States, most of NAFTA is designed around the free movement of goods, not necessarily the regulatory environments within those jurisdictions. So I don't think they, and, and we do try to work very hard to create 
harmonization of regulations. Um, but Health Canada continues to really dig in, I think, with regards to some of these things. The good news, and, and if there's a silver lining under uh, through problems that have existed on shortages. So we had infant formula shortages this year, and we had um, children's um, Tylenol and Advil shortages. And a good portion of the problem with that, again, was, was due to COVID, much higher use um, on a longer period of time on these things, cold and cough, the same thing. Um, and some of those products are made here, some are not, they come in from the United States. Um, I think because of those two shortage issues, Health Canada, through some very good work with a group of roundtable people, myself included, who got brought together by the Minister of Health, I think we're starting to get through to them that regulatory modernization is really, really necessary and harmonization, especially with the United States. So as an example, we have a massive shortage of children analegics and we were succinct and we were very involved as an organization in getting product from the United States and product from Australia. Those products came in and they would have alleviated probably about three to four months worth of the problem, which would have allowed the Canadian manufacturing to catch up. The dosages were a bit different because different regulations. So the one batch that we had coming from Australia was all dedicated to the hospitals because they obviously needed as well. Hospitals decided to reject it because they didn't want to go through the process of rewriting protocols on the dosages product got thrown in the garbage, 6 million doses of product. The US stuff came up and again, the dosage was a little bit different. And it took us forever to convince the government to allow this product to come in and to maybe just have the pharmacists identify that dosage is a little different, but, and then of course, as is as always in Canada, we had resistance from Quebec because it was unilingual packaging. <laughs> and we kind of, so their answer to it was give us all the bilingual packaging you've got in current inventories and put all the other stuff that's coming from the United States and the rest of Canada. So, but at the end of the day, that's the sort of nonsense that we have to deal with. And it just, you know, the, the flour that's in a pizza, the flour that's in bread or any baked good, it has to be fortified to come to Canada. And you kind of go, fortification is, there's no health benefit to fortification. And so it's just, but it takes so long to get change. So long, years and years and years of fighting and pushing and trying to validate rationale and scientific evidence. And, you know, we're all about regulation based on science, but, it, you know, Health Canada and some of the other entities we have to deal with could could apply a little bit of that principle themselves at times. So, so you've talked a, a bit about the U.S. and other other jurisdictions. You do say in your article that other countries are actually making it easier to operate for these companies. Are there other examples uh, of what you see in other countries that we should be doing here? Yeah, I think if you, you look across Europe and, and with the European Union, you know, there's been a lot more harmonization of regulations. So it's kind of one big entity now, which makes the flow of goods much more easier. Um, on the other side, on the capital side, you've got many, many countries are incentivizing capital investment through tax incentives, labor incentives, and things like that. We have none of that really to any great extent here in Canada. There is some. We watched the federal government give $12 billion to the battery companies for EV cars, um, but there is very little incentive within our sector, in, you know, around investment. We're seeing, you see more of it in Quebec, and Quebec has done a really good job in its efforts to attract manufacturing capacity and capital investment. The rest of Canada, it's been pretty quiet in regards to that. So, you know, we have we've um, one major manufacturer who's in the plant-based business um, decided to build a plant down in the United States versus Canada. It was very central for them in regards to both the Canadian and US market for distribution. It was about a $700,000 capital investment. All in for them, about 300, 350 million. The rest was covered by municipal state 
and federal subsidies. So, you know, those are the sort of things that happen. And, you know, when Google was out looking for another, quote, second head office and, you know, cities like New York offered them billions of dollars. And here in Toronto, we said to them, we've got a great talent pool of technology people. We've got a dynamic cultural environment. You know, we're in safe, but, but there was not a dollar, not a single dollar in the pitch. And so guess what? We didn't get it. And they went someplace where, you know, there were financial incentives. So our government's have a tendency to do this at times. And I think part of what the challenge is, is that in this whole Buy America environment and the current Biden administration and even Trump's administration in previous times, they have invested significantly to attract more capital investment in manufacturing. They understand that they've got to get some of that capacity back from Mexico. They've got to get some of that capacity back from China and Vietnam and the Philippines. And the only way we're going to do that is incentivize people to manufacture in this country. So I think part of the response from Canada on the battery situation was really fundamentally to compete against the American policy. But <clears throat> I, I kind of think we spent all our money in one bucket. That was a lot of money. And, you know, reports that came out this week indicated it would be like 20 years before you get a return on investment on that $20 billion, whatever it was between the two companies. So, you know, but it's it, it, it's unfortunate because there isn't enough attention to those things in Canada. You know, food manufacturing and consumer goods manufacturing is the largest manufacturing sector in this country. We represent about 17% of the manufacturing capacity. We contribute about 2% to GDP every year. We employ over 400,000 people. But I think if you went to talk to the Canadian government today about manufacturing priorities, they would talk about planes, trains, and automobiles and batteries long before they talked about food manufacturing and its implications all the way through the supply chain. We buy, as processors, 60% of the agricultural output in this country in processing. And so there is this integrated chain that exists of economic value in this country that just continues to be ignored. And it's really frustrating because we have a wealth of economic, of agricultural value. We, we have a tremendous um, infrastructure in regards to manufacturing. And, and there's an opportunity to become a massive exporter. You know, the world is growing and, you know, Canadian food is and, and consumer goods have a tremendous reputation. And we're missing a huge opportunity for growth outside of our own borders by feeding this massive increase in population that we're experiencing. Yeah, just a couple of quick points. Um, the, there's no payback on that; those billions to to Volkswagen. There's, there's, it works out to be two to three million dollars per worker. I don't even know twenty years, thirty years, forty years. I'm not sure there's ever a payback. Um, and the thing I like about the U.S. incentive programs is they're tax based for the most yeah. part. There's some incentives, but the point is, yes, you get a twenty or thirty year corporate tax break, but the all the employers are going to be paying taxes on their labor. So you're still going to get taxes on those food uh, manufacturing plants. You might not get as much corporate tax, but you'll get it back on the sales and personal income tax. So I prefer the U.S. model to just the straight sort of Canadian yeah. model. So I totally agree. agree with you on that. And you talked about the, the supply chain that feeds into manufacturing. But I think part of what we're talking about here today is the downstream, too. And that is actually at the consumer level. If you've got the manufacturers here they're less likely to leave because they are familiar with the packaging and the regulation and everything that uh, you've been talking about today. So there's upstream and downstream benefits to very to, much uh, so to attracting those manufacturers. Um, but that brings me to this issue of labor shortages, because you did mention that in your piece, that that is a, is a key challenge. Of course, we're seeing the same challenges in Atlantic Canada. Um, even as we see these these sort of real high levels of job vacancies. Can you tell us why you're concerned about uh, labor shortages? Well, we, we currently in our sector have about 45,000 
vacant positions in manufacturing today. Um, and it's, it's, it's a challenge to fill them. And, you know, I, I certainly believe more economic-focused immigration targeting particular people to actually fill these jobs could be very, very helpful as we start to move forward. I think, you know, we've always loved to welcome doctors and lawyers and architects, and unfortunately, we don't always recognize their credentials, so we meet them as our Uber drivers, uh, which is a, a, an absolute shame. Um, you know, we've started to make changes in the healthcare profession so that we can recognize credentials of nurses because we're under such shortages. But I think there's a tremendous opportunity to be able to do focused immigration on these things. So as an example, when Brexit came in the, U in the UK, a um, good portion of the drivers, truck drivers, transport drivers, were from Eastern Europe. Well, guess what happened when Brexit came in? They went home. And, you know, so we have a shortage of drivers in this country to be able to get our goods from point A to point B. Why didn't we do a dedicated program in regards to going out to try to recruit drivers, especially from Eastern Europe, who do have, you know, likely connectivity to Canada to some certain extent. The problem that we've got is that if, you know, it's the old, you know, cart before the horse. We don't have the housing infrastructure for these people. And the economics are that where a lot of the plants are, are in areas that the housing is so damn expensive that it's a challenge. It really is. And, you know, you've got a, somebody immigrating to Canada and they, you get a job in Toronto and you're going to spend $3,000 a month for a one bedroom plus bachelor apartment. It's hard. And it is really, really hard. Hopefully that plays out nicely longer term for some secondary markets like Atlantic Canada, where we can convince companies to build there because the land to build on is cheaper in the first place. If we can attract the right labor pool to work within those environments, the cost of living is lower. It becomes, I think, an economic development opportunity. And I think, you know, if you go back way, way long time ago, when you had a lot of immigration coming to Canada, the federal government was very disciplined in saying, okay, you know, you're going to arrive in Halifax off that boat, but we're putting you on a train to Winnipeg. And why are all the Polish people there? Because all those immigrants at that time were asked to go there. And, and so there's no harm in that, in having a harmonized capital investment plan around immigration and, and expansion of manufacturing capacity in geographies where it can work. And so it's, it's, it's easy to say, let's bring half a million new, very specific immigrants to this country to work within manufacturing, but then we got to figure out affordable housing and infrastructure. And, and, and that's unfortunately in this country right now, a problem where we've seen it you know, we just don't have enough houses. Yeah, well, here at the Insights Podcast, we're all about economic development in Atlantic Canada. That's one of our key focus areas. I remember Allison McCain, uh, form, former, I think current CEO or former CEO of McCain Foods, uh, told me one time, you can either locate your manufacturing plants next to your raw materials, say potatoes, or markets where you're where the people are, but not in somewhere in the middle. You either have to be near the near the raw materials, the blueberries, the potatoes, whatever, or near the customers. Um, we had a pizza plant, a big one in, in New Brunswick, and it was closed. It was bought yeah. by Dr. Octor and then closed. And it was my, I was told it was because of the industrial cheese problem. So coming back to one of your earlier comments about, about cheese, but, but I think McCain's concern was, you know, if we have to bring in the raw materials to produce that food in Atlantic Canada and then ship it back out to central Canada or, or even the U.S., it becomes more uh, more problematic. What, what do you think about that? Do you think we need, I guess what I'm asking you is, do you think we need to be focused more on the raw materials that go into the food, the dairy products, the, the, the meat products, the, the potatoes, et cetera, if we want to grow a food uh, food related manufacturing sector in this region? Well, I think it's critical. Um, there is way, way too much primary processing being done outside of Canada. So, you know, the, the crop or the goods are, are produced in a field in Alberta. They're shipped to the United States and processed. They come back as an ingredient. So now the connectivity to agriculture and being close to your source is irrelevant. So now, 
it becomes that market discussion. But there's also a cost implication because there's usually tariffs associated with those things. So the inflation of the cost of that ingredient goes up the minute you have a cross-border relationship with it. So I think, you know, one of the things that we've been advocating quite strongly is, is that we have to look to be in a position to do more of that primary ingredient processing right here in Canada. So when the canola comes off the field, rather than going to the United States and being produced into canola oil and then coming back, let's make the canola oil here. And incentivizing that manufacturing component, and it, it will have an inflationary impact. I think it is going to have significant impact on on what I call rural or secondary manufacturing, which has real economic value for Atlantic Canada, for the prairies. Um, and it just makes good sense. And then the ingredients then stay within Canada as they are distributed for manufacturing. Will that mean that more manufacturing gets closer? Sometimes. But if anything, it just means a deflation because you're not having to deal with cross-border um, issues and sort of the cost implications that come from that. So, you know, we continue to advocate with Health Canada or with Ag Canada and with ICED to, you know, think more about the supply chain, having full control of it all the way through from, from field to shelf, and that we're working more to have an integrated um, manufacturing component all the way through the value chain. And it's, it's, it's a weakness that we have in this country. Do you have any thoughts on why that is? Is it is it just a straight issue that the federal government isn't interested in the jobs because they're not $35 an hour? Or is there something else going on there? No, I, I, I think, you know, some of it may be that. I think um, at the end, you've just got to find the companies and attract the companies that want to come and make those investments to do those things. You know, we've, we've seen some real good momentum around plant-based. Um, uh, you know, some fairly significant investments in Western Canada, you know, around um, uh, pea proteins and whey proteins and things like that. And you're seeing those processing plants come through. Um, you know, there's a phenomenal company in Western Canada called AGT, which is doing a lot of that stuff in the pulse area. Um, so we're starting to see it. And I think because there's been success, I think you will start to see more people attracted to it. But I also think you may see that some of these companies that have invested in in sort of the pulse end of ingredient manufacturing will maybe look to build their businesses and expand it by doing more of that in other areas, um, given it's still in the plant aspect of it. And um, so that may transpire too. So, um, but it's been quite a phenomenal transition. There's been a lot of capital investment in, in plant-based um, processing over the last five, six years. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the impacts on Atlantic Canada. So we've been actually, we diverted a bit into the economic development opportunity and I appreciate that. I'm actually going to give your business card to the folks at Opportunities New Brunswick so you can help them figure out how to attract those manufacturing plants. But I wanted to talk to you about these downstream issues like the loss of Skippy, the loss of the some of the frozen pizzas, the Kleenexes, the, all the other brands that you mentioned earlier, and just the lack of competition. So, of course, you talk about Canada not being a large market. Well, Atlantic Canada is a pretty um, marginal market within Canada. We've got, you know, three million people or so spread over four provinces and very diverse uh, uh, um, and no, not a lot of urban hubs or urban centers. So this podcast is all about prosperity in Atlantic Canada and what we need to do to encourage that moving forward. I'm a big believer that competition in our all, all sectors of the economy, service industries, everything else, but certainly the sector that you deal with. Uh, so you, do you think that in the medium to longer term, places like Atlantic Canada will be har even harder hit than the larger urban centers with this trend that we're seeing from these brands? But potentially, as um, you probably have less choice already just because of the distribution component of it. And, you know, companies look at it. And, and so what happens is, is they distribute 
their best sellers, shall we say. And so those secondary lines, so you may, I'll use potato chips as an example, you may walk into a store in Toronto and there's like 18 flavors. You might walk into the same store in Halifax and there's 12 flavors. So because there's the distribution component and the cost, and and it's also easier, quite frankly, if you have less um, diversity, you can manage your inventories better. And because of the distribution component of it. And, you know, I lived in, I lived in Pictou County for a number of years, but I've also lived in Vancouver. I, the shopping experience in those two places is very different than Toronto or Montreal. So a, a part of it is just because you don't have the manufacturing nearby. Now, in areas of product where you do have um, more localized, uh, then, you know, quite frankly, Sometimes you have more supply and more variety than in other places. So I think that's part of the problem with the dynamics of really centralized manufacturing in Canada. And you just want to maximize your distribution. So I want to make sure my truck, when it's going to Atlantic Canada, is full of the goods and I can keep some inventory there and I can keep it turning. And the more diversity there is, the harder it is to make that. And then you get stock outs and it becomes problematic in its own right. So you've been weaving throughout our conversation a number of potential solutions to this problem that have been very helpful. Um, but I did want to come back to that issue and ask you to sort of summarize for us what you're telling government, what you're telling uh, your members. What should we do to actually solve this issue in terms of workforce development, addressing regulatory issues and so on? You know, just this week, uh, and this is probably going to air next week. So last week, um, uh, the prime minister uh, came out and said he's going. You know, he's going to convene all the big grocery players, and uh, if they don't reduce prices or moderate price increases, he might tax them more. So I guess the question for you is: Is that really part of the solution, or should we be looking about, you know, how we work with these imported products and regulations and cheese and all those other things? So can you give us a sort of a thumbnail sketch? of what we should do to address this problem. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the actions of the federal government, the prime minister and Minister Champagne right now is, it's called I'm 16 points behind in the polls. I'm getting creamed and it's going in the wrong direction. And so I'm looking for some retail politics here. Um, I would love to have any economist in the world or politician explain to me how taxation creates deflation. It actually creates inflation because guess what? when there's those incremental taxes and they have an impact on the profitability, that means that prices will go up. And if it doesn't happen at the retail level because of their profitability, they will push the responsibility of compensating for those taxes back to the manufacturer who in turn will turn around and raise their prices, which will be, so it, 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 it's, it, the consequences of this are so obvious. I'm actually a little shocked that they, uh, even insinuated the taxation would be um, an implication of this. So hopefully they walk that back and they, they may. I think they had a couple of emotional days in their caucus that probably didn't go well. And I'm sure, uh, you know, it's, it's like the email when you're angry. Sometimes you're best to put it into draft and look at it the next day. And I just wonder if they should have left this a couple of days and let it sort of simmer. But anyways, it is what it is. I think you have to think, focus on the fundamentals and the infrastructure components of it as you go forward. And, you know, we've been working with retail and agriculture on a grocery code of conduct. The relationship is absolutely out of whack. And there is requirements of a significant cultural transition in the relationship between the suppliers, and I, I include agriculture in that because they sell direct to retail, and the retailers. And we've got to get something that allows better economic certainty for manufacturers so that there's a comfort level that they can invest in this country again. And it's not about making retail less successful. Quite the contrary, it should actually make them more successful. The code in the United Kingdom was implemented about 15 years ago. The end result was that the consumer won because there was more variety, more um, investments in sustainable packaging. The manufacturer won because their costs were mitigated, which they then turned into capital investment in regards to 
more manufacturing capacity, more R&D, and a lot of investment in sustainability. Retailer profits improved. And, and they then go and reinvest those profits back in creating a more competitive retail environment. So it was a win-win-win. And for most of the 15 years of the code being implemented, there was stability in pricing. Now, this current world of inflation, the UK has gone through the roof. And some of it, I would have to suggest, is bad policy on getting out of Brexit and trying to go it alone as an island versus the European Union. But the global phenomena of inflation was hit even harder there. And so the code lost some of its value, shall we say, in regards to its impact on deflation. But that too shall come back once there's stability back into the marketplace. So I think we've got to focus in on that. And let's go back. You know, there's lots of rhetoric and lots of talk about immigration and and how important it is to Canada. But let's get the infrastructure right first so that when we get them here, we got a home for them. And, And that there is so putting, you know, again, put that horse out in front. Get the housing infrastructure, the investments and the things that are necessary to be able to house people and then start to bring them in. And when you do be very selective, I, you know, I don't, we really do have some very specific areas within manufacturing that could use immigration. The other is to work with industry and work with government around technology and the advancement of as much innovation and technology as possible to help circumvent the need for as much labor. And, you know, much of our industry is transitioning slowly to automation. And automation doesn't mean there's two people in the plant and there used to be 400 people. It probably means you've gone from 400 to 300, but they're very different jobs and in many cases, better paying jobs than a manual labor role. It's more technology driven. You're you're driving technology to make the products that are there. But you got to create those incentives for these companies to make those capital investments in innovation to be able to compensate for that. And, and that, I think, is going to be a major um, solution to some of the labor issues that exist. And I know, you'll, you know, there was recently a strike at the ports in Vancouver. One of the major issues was around technology. And the union said, guys, you know, we don't want you doing innovation. We don't want robotics. We want our jobs. Well, y- you know, there's got to be a give and take here. But at the end of the day, if there's not enough people to fill those jobs, we've got to do something else. Like, you know, our experiences at grocery are very different. Like, you used to go and have that three-minute chat with a cashier. Today, you talk to yourself at self-checkout. Because those are put in because of labor. Because it was just so hard to attract and find people to work in those jobs. Now, there's been other consequences by theft and all the other issues that have come with it. But, you know, you can figure those things out. So... It's not all about, it's a combination of things all working together. We need immigration. We need investment and innovation so that we can bring more um, technology to, to the factory floors as we start to move forward. We need that regulatory modernization, better alignment, especially with the United States where, you know, they're our largest trading customer. We're also one of their largest customers in, in the opposite approach. We need to have better flea floral goods from a regulatory perspective, especially in the food category, as we start to move forward. And I think that will, will really help as well as we start to go. And if you get the implementation of the code of conduct, and it has to be a, a, a code of conduct that goes across all categories in the store. This just isn't about food. It's about changing that culture of relationship and it has to be across the store, and it will have an impact in regards to, um, I really believe, quality. It will have an impact on investments in sustainable packaging, on on variety for the consumer, and and I do believe it'll have an inf- a deflationary component. So if we can start to focus on that stuff, and then you know when we start to look at industry, if I think about. You know, we invested $20 billion in batteries in Windsor, Ontario. We had taken $10 billion of that and said, we're going to invest in primary ingredient processing in Canada. And we're going to put 10 plants 
we're going to incentivize somebody to build 10 plants in Red Deer, in just outside Winnipeg, and uh, just outside Halifax, and these different places where we can take these commodities and transition them into value to be utilized as ingredients in this country's manufacturing, then all of a sudden, the company that is sitting there determining whether they're going to make investments in manufacturing capacity say, I have better access to ingredients. It's all here. Instead of me having to place my order with XYZ company in Wyoming, I can I can get all those products here. I don't have I don't have foreign exchange issues, I don't have tariff issues, and I don't have the same distribution issues. So what would have that $10 billion have done to the overall economics of things? And I think we would have got a return on investment in five or 10 years, not 25 or 30 years. And we could have also had regional economic development take place because each area of the country produces things that is put in a truck and shipped someplace else to be manufactured into an ingredient. So you identify those areas and you strategically position that economic development. So Atlantic Canada you know, should be looking at all those things that they produce and how could we become, you know, that ingredient supplier? Because as an ingredient, if I was to take, you know, canola and turning it into oil, shipping, it's not all that expensive. It's not all that hard because you bulk, you bulk ship and it's not going in glass. It's going in a container truck or a container train and it's shipped very easily through a pretty good infrastructure distribution that we have it's very cost effective but the minute it goes across a border it just multiplies in magnitudes of cost impact so i think if we can start to focus on some of those things the other is you know david it's not a short-term win here and you know part of the problem is is that we rely so heavily on government who are on political cycles and as we look at the current political environment, what the liberals think and what the conservatives think are very different. And so if we do have an election in 12 to 18 months from now, and if we do end up having um, you know, a change in government, a lot of what exists today will change for a period of time. A lot of these things are longer term. You know, capital investment and a strategy, an agricultural you know, manufacturing strategy, it, it's a 10, 15 year situation. So we've got to find other mechanisms. And whether that's industry taking ownership of it, less reliant on government. And again, I concur with you 100%. It's not about giving $10 billion. It's about giving $10 billion where the tax breaks or people, our industry is not concerned about spending the money. It really isn't. Very rarely they go with a handout um, to government saying like, we want you to pay for our plant. But if you can give those incentives on taxation, you can create some, you know, hopeful, um, some incentives around them making those investments in innovation. And you can help us in regards to attracting the right people to fill our plants. They're all in. And so I think if you can get that sort of bigger thing happening, it's just hard to do within a political environment. So, Michael, I think you're going to get 100 percent agreement. Uh, from our audience, but if I have any listeners, if we have any listeners in southwestern Ontario, you know the auto sector is is right below energy. It's our biggest export sector, uh, and I think a lot of people are nervous about about how we retain the next generation of the auto sector in Atlantic Canada. Although I just I just can't believe that level of incentive is required. And of course, what has happened is you're now getting that that sort of spiraling effect where Germany's asking for the same amount of subsidy or something similar to get a battery plant over there. So you're, so it started in the U S I'll give you that with the inflation reduction act, ironically, then Canada felt it had to be, get in. And now the Europeans have to get in. Um, and it's just, a, it's just a, a big, uh, you know, it's just a big competition for those dollars. And I think you're right that if we had been more strategic and said, okay, we've got 20 billion, where should we spend it? Where's the best value for the Canadian taxpayer? I don't think it would have been one or two plants in southwestern Ontario. No, and you know the auto industry is very important to the economy here. It's um, it's uh, you know it's getting down to its last lives. Like when you look at the magnitude of of how large it was, and you know 
not too long ago, there was a lot of uproar in Oshawa, Ontario, when, you know, there were six or 7,000 people let go. And, you know, it's minimized in regards. People forget 25 years ago, there was 45,000, 50,000 employees at Oshawa. It's just slowly but surely decreased into, you know, just a shadow of what it used to be. Look at St. Thomas, Ontario. It had to reinvent itself as a community because it lost its business. And, and so it's worth fighting for, but is, is, is throwing money at it the way to do it? Or is that just very short-term thinking that doesn't provide long-term economic value? And are there other ways to think about that? So I, I truthfully don't want us to get into a situation where the government is throwing money at our industry. I want to find ways to be able to develop it so it's long-term economic value. And that once, once the money's gone, people just say, well, I'm leaving. We're out. Somebody yeah. else offered us some more cash and away we go. And, you know, that could happen in the battery business. We may end up with, you know, spending all that money and all of a sudden, you know, you watch it today as our sports um, athletes are moving from team to team to team. Remember the old days where you played in the same team your whole career. Today, you're chasing a paycheck. And it's the same thing with manufacturing. In many cases, you chase the next incentive. Yeah. So um, just one last question for you before we wrap up here. You know, you're in the middle of this. You're in the thick of it on a daily basis. Are you think things are going to get better or worse? Are you optimistic or pessimistic if we look out, you know, a year, two, three, four years? Are, are you going to get this code of conduct uh, done? Uh, where are you in terms of your own thinking on this? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always an optimist. I'm a, it's always half full in my world. Um, and I think, you know, we you have to continue to work hard to find solutions um, you know, one of the things that I continue to advocate with government is we're not the enemy. We're actually here to make you look good. And but we bring with with our organization, or our members, a level of expertise that can be very helpful to government around um, uh, ensuring that we do have a very vibrant economy here. And we are a nation of growers and we're a nation of manufacturers and we are a nation of service orientation, you know, just coming from Charlottetown and watching, I watched three cruise ships come into the harbor while I was there and, you know, living for many years in Vancouver, like the, we don't make a lot of stuff in British Columbia. We just invite lots of people to come and enjoy the wonderful place. So, you know, there's such a diversity of opportunity here, but I, I just, I think we just have to continue to think to do things just a little bit differently as we move forward. I really do think that you know, the relationship with the retailers has to change and it needs to be a broad-based scope. And I think it's pretty critical that it gets done. Very unique that it's voluntary. It's not regulated. But, you know, it's funny. There's some in our industry would love to have it as a regulated code of conduct. I personally am happy that it's voluntary as long as there's mandatory participation because of what experience we had yesterday, where all of a sudden the minister comes out and demands people. So if, if this was a regulated code and things weren't quite going right, we would have somebody that really doesn't understand our industry having significant implications on it. So all the more reason to try to get our industry to, to align and get its act together so that we can incentivize government not to take control of our of our code of conduct. Um, and, and hopefully, and I, I believe that is happening through the industry, but it was a wake-up call yesterday for us in regards to this is what life could look like in a regulated environment. And today it's the large grocers. Tomorrow it might be the manufacturers and you just need to go. So... You know, you just got to keep plodding away. I think, um, you know, we're very fortunate that we do have a very strong, still have a strong manufacturing infrastructure here in, in Canada. Um, my goal is to make sure, you know, we, we employ about 400,000 people in our sector. My goal, if I could have any influence, and I try hard every day, is to get that to 500,000 and to continue to incentive, to look to encourage our manufacturers to invest in this country. I'm a homer, I'm a Canadian, and I'm very proud of this country. And I want very much for it to have that economic stability, but I also understand you gotta have the jobs. 
And so to have the jobs, you got to have the manufacturing and, and we've got the customers, but you know, at some point it all is a vicious cycle. If the jobs aren't there, then people don't have money to be able to afford to buy the goods that we make, or at least on the quantity that they have or to travel or to buy the car with the new EV battery. So it is a vicious cycle. And we need to work very hard to to make sure that the Canadian economy continues to prosper. And, you know, manufacturers are a big part of that economic prosperity. And certainly our segment are a huge part of it. Michael, if our listeners want to get learn more about your organization, where would we send them? Yeah, just uh, um, www.fhcp.com. And that's where we're at. And uh, we... Uh, Really appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. Well, we appreciate you coming on. We'll put that uh, website in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much again for talking to us about this very important subject. Okay, David, anytime. Look forward to seeing you again, hopefully. You've been listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform, like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.